just a couple of things. Uh, Jill Saunders, who spoke at the ladies' fall soup luncheon, has sent a small gift for each of the ladies, and you'll find these on the kitchen counter back there, so ladies do make sure to pick up your copy of that, and I think also there's a thank you note that the ladies from Greenville sent to, I don't know, I guess thank you ladies for including them in your fall soup luncheon, so do take note of those things there in the kitchen. I want to read this evening from verse 1 in Ephesians 5. We'll read down through the end of verse 21. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness Let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, Redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Well, amen. Linda reading, trusting again the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. Let's do bow our heads and hearts together as we consider the word tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful tonight to lift praises to a God who's worthy. And we've read tonight many things that are quite parallel to the portion we read and considered something of this morning. And yet here we have the testimony mingled in that we once were darkness, but now are light. Or we once believed the lie. We once pursued and encouraged ourselves in the lies. But you intervened. 
Breathe life into our dead hearts. Cause that light to shine into us. And brought us unto Christ. Help us then in the very things that we've read tonight to be a people that are overwhelmed with thanksgiving for a God who has so graciously dealt with his people. So draw near to us, Lord, we pray. And help us even in these moments at the close of our Sabbath together. We pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. In many ways, I'm tempted to keep preaching the morning message because we didn't quite get finished with that per se. But I want this evening rather to turn to this portion which I'm sure you will have noticed so many parts of Romans 1 are included in the reading that we had tonight. And actually that little phrase that we mentioned this morning here about being ashamed to speak of those things done of them in secret appears in this portion where Paul writes to the Ephesians. But I want to come this year, recall last week I was under the weather and so my Thanksgiving message for last Lord's Day evening comes here this evening. And I want to pursue a theme and actually the talking points, if you will, of something that we've held before you several times over the years when we consider the whole issue and topic of thanksgiving. You see the Apostle mentioning the giving of thanks both at the beginning and the ending of the reading that we've read together tonight. It is characteristic. It is completely the normal state of affairs, if you will, of those that have passed from darkness to light. To be a thankful people in contrast to what we read in Romans 1 of those that are still in the grip of darkness. And we have that little phrase, neither were thankful. I shared with you briefly on the Tuesday evening fellowship time before Thanksgiving that I've always, even from a young person, been taken back with the fact that Paul includes that little phrase in Romans 1. We're not so surprised, if you will, to, to see that catalog of those awful sins those perversions that we find in the description of the ungodly. It seems that failure to give thanks would, would almost not rank high enough to be placed on that list. And yet in many ways it certainly ranks high enough because it's one of the root sins. The other things that we see as so unclean, and rightly so, are the, the fruit Sins. They flow out of other things. And it's a failure to render thanks. It's a heart that's incapable of rendering thanks that produces the fruit of those other things. And so I want this evening to consider four truths. And I say four truths that we've set before you before in different contexts and with different material, if you will, underneath them. But truths that bear constant repeating and constant remembering. And what I speak of is what I've brought and bring tonight under the heading of the implications of thanksgiving. The very rendering of thanks... The principle, the thing itself implies so many things. And the first one that we have to understand that thanksgiving implies 
is need. There's so many ways in which we look in Scripture and we we are to walk in the ways of God. We even speak in our study of theology about His incommunicable and His communicable attributes. And we're to follow on in those things that He can communicate to us that we can in measure pursue. But thankfulness isn't on that list. Because thankfulness doesn't and cannot belong to God. To whom would God render thanks? Thanksgiving implies need. And God has no needs. Therefore, God does not render thanks. You look at the prophet, and this is the prophet again speaking with, well, the Lord speaking through the prophet with sarcasm and irony to grasp the attention of the hearers. And God says, if I were hungry, we could translate there, if I had a need, I wouldn't tell you. We are so incapable of rendering to meet the needs of God. Of course, God has no needs. That's the point. We, on the other hand, are constantly needy. This is the God in whom our breath is. This is the God upon whom we depend for all things. And if you think of this on both sides of the fall, it's easy for us, and I trust in our meditations tonight, we'll consider the thankfulness that is due unto God and that we should happily and constantly render, particularly with regard to redemption. But we were to be a thankful people before the fall. The God who made us, the God in whose hand our breath is, is the God by whom all things consist. By whom all things are held together. All creation is dependent upon Him sustaining it. I don't know how often you're given to pause and meditate on deep things to well meditation I think is almost foreign to our busy culture but I saw one of the images actually this one was not from the new Webb Space Telescope it was an inferior Hubble image of all things but it showed I forget how many Light years it was from us, quite distant indeed, but two merging galaxies. And just from this distance and seeing the stars and the light from that, it was spectacular. You think about the, the space, the size, the distance, everything involved in that. You think about the billions of stars that are involved in that. The mass, the weight, the gravitational forces of all those stars, of all the other space debris and whatever that is surrounding them. God is mindful. God is sovereignly in control of all of those forces 
so many hundreds of millions of light years from here, at the same time he's aware of the hairs of our head. At the same time his eyes upon the sparrow that falls. All things derive their existence from him and depend upon him in being sustained. I have to laugh when I hear the environmentalists. I mean, how many times is the world supposed to have burned up already in the last 20 years and it hasn't? You think of the early texts in Genesis after the flood. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, cold and heat. God is on the throne. He rules. He reigns. He sustains all things. All things are in need of His sustaining hand. And we as His creatures, we as the pinnacle of His creation, that point of creation that bears His image, yet we are in need constantly of Him. To be aware of that. To be aware of who God is and who we are. That's really the source of right knowledge. I thought of reading this this morning, but, well, if you were here this morning, you saw that time was gone before we started. But I want to read a paragraph here with regard to really abandoning this understanding of our need, of our relationship to God. It's involved in the sinful fall of the human mind. Listen, if you will, to these words. The effect of sin upon the mind of man is to turn his fancied wisdom into foolishness. Calvin observed that when miserable men do seek after God, instead of ascending higher than themselves as they ought to do, they measure Him by their own carnal stupidity. Hence, they do not conceive of Him in the character in which He's manifested, but imagine Him to be whatever their own rashness has devised. The folly of idolatry is therefore the logical result of the corrupt imagination. However, when God declares man's wisdom to be foolishness, the whole question of the validity of human knowledge is raised. It is because man holds down the truth and unrighteousness that it becomes a problem to himself. It was by receiving the devil's lie that man first fell into sin. He aspired to an equal ultimacy with God and thus denied the most basic fact of his own existence, namely his creatureliness. By refusing to know God as God, he lost the only means of identifying and knowing himself. Every problem in philosophy stems from this primal apostasy. The profound opening sentence of Calvin's Institutes expresses this inseparable relationship with ultimate clarity. Quote, Our wisdom 
insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. It is the loss of the true knowledge of God which makes the Socratic injunction, know thyself, an impossible requirement. No independent knowledge is possible for man. Everything he knows, he knows from God. It's because man refuses to acknowledge this source and insists upon the originality of his own interpretation of the brute facts that his knowledge is poisoned by the fatal error of his fundamental religious presupposition, which is that there's no self-existent creator to whom he's indebted for every breath which he draws. When we turn from the knowledge of God, when we suppress truth, we seal our own ruin. And in many ways, it brings us to this theme. Men who suppress that truth, who suppress real knowledge and the source of any real knowledge, deny their creaturehood. You know, we could talk about all this theoretically, but I remember reading that phrase in this week in preparation of man denying the most fundamental part of his own existence, namely his creaturehood. We see around us every day, not only displayed by those that are living in despair, it's paraded, it's promoted to deny crucial points of our own existence. What folly. And in many ways, we can bring it back to this first implication. Thanksgiving implies need. And when men deny their need, they deny the knowledge of God, well, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Let us not deny our creaturehood. Let us never deny our dependence upon our Creator. The second implication that I suggest to you is thanksgiving implies then the reception of a gift to meet the need. And again, in all of these thoughts, it is easy for us to go to the other side, if you will, of conversion and render thanks and to think of the reception of a gift with regard to redemption, with regard to salvation itself. But understand with me, even before the fall, man was a recipient. What had Adam done to deserve to be created? Nothing. Because he didn't exist. God graciously chose to create a being capable of communication and enjoyment of its Creator. That's a gift. 
That is, if we can use the phrase we often use and perhaps don't think deeply enough about it, that's the gift of life. So man is the recipient of a gift to meet his need, to sustain him in every way, even before we come to think of redemption. But how much more when we consider how we ought to be thankful, when we think of receiving a gift to meet the need salvation to answer the problem of our alienation from our creator of our being under the condemnation of his holy law of being those that will forever receive his eternal wrath and who deserve indeed that punishment remember in the early days some were taken back but yet came to rejoice in the phrase of one of the new old hymns that we began to sing. Oh, blessed God, how kind, I think. But the line in there, preserved by Jesus, when my feet made haste to hell, there should I have gone. But Thou dost all things well. Thy love was great, Thy mercy free, which from the pit delivered We are the recipients of the gift of salvation. And this should issue in thanksgiving. The wonder of God condescending to us in our sin. Not dealing with us according to our sin. Dealing with Christ according to our sins. And dealing with us according to His righteousness. We are the recipients of many gifts, not the least of which is the grace of salvation. Well, if thanksgiving implies need, if it implies the reception of a gift to meet our needs, and thirdly, it implies a grateful spirit in the recipient. Ingratitude is that which followed the fall. Ingratitude is that which characterizes those seen under that judicial renunciation of Romans 1 that we read and so just began to scratch the surface of this morning. In some ways, perhaps some of you can join me in thinking of the grace that has been given to us really throughout all our days. Sometimes people are, at least we hear references to this, people are a little concerned if they don't have a dramatic testimony to give. Often in the circles I grew up in, and I guess it's not only in non-reformed circles, but sometimes perhaps in reformed circles we don't do enough of testifying. We do take season in our Thanksgiving service each year for opportunities there and in our prayer times along the way. 
People often are called upon to give a testimony of conversion and some of the dramatic details that some might give that were converted later in life and sadly had some of the scars of sin along their journey. And some may think, well, my conversion wasn't as miraculous or as dramatic as that. Well, let me tell you, converted at the youngest of ages, your conversion was just as miraculous as that. And as to the sins and scars, you can be thankful to be spared those instead of have endured them. We come to consider the conditions described there in Romans. Neither were thankful. The ingratitude of the ungodly in some ways, if we've been in that sheltered environment as it were, it can be a foreign thing to us. And yet even in such a case, what care we need to take that ingratitude never creep in. Thanksgiving implies a grateful spirit in the recipient. Paul said he'd learned. He didn't necessarily say it was easy. He said he learned in whatsoever state he was therein to be content. He could render thanks to God even for his trials. That's gospel thinking. That's not victim mentality thinking that's trumpeted from the pulpits of our generation. That's a gospel heart. As we said on the Tuesday evening, quote Dr. Allison, understanding justification, we can be brutally honest with ourselves as to what we deserve as to who we are in and of ourselves, and yet what has been given us in Christ, that in the worst of our circumstances, we can say, I thank God I'm not in hell today. I thank God I never will be in God's hell. To be thankful then implies a grateful Spirit in the recipient. It's one of the so-called chapel sayings down at BJ when I was a student. I think it's getting to be ancient enough history. A few generations in between today and the founder. But there were these chapel sayings of Dr. Jones Sr. And one of them was when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, and that man is well-nigh hopeless. Thanksgiving implies a grateful spirit in the recipient. For if thanksgiving implies need, and we then have been the recipients of a gift to meet that need, then it implies a grateful spirit in us as the recipient And lastly, I would say it implies the glory of the giver. We are early on in our 
embarkment into the book of Romans. I'm not sure if we'll visit chapter 1 again. If you look at how long we spent on the opening 18 verses and compare that to the time we spent on verses 19 to 32, then that's a pretty shocking revelation, but we sought at least to cover the theme, the truths contained in those closing verses of chapter 1 this morning. But I say as you look through Romans, there are key points along the way as Paul reaches the conclusion of various points of his argument where he just pauses and renders a doxology. Praise, thanksgiving to God. The power of the Gospel. I mean, we're the recipients of that grace. We're the ones that benefit from the work of Jesus. And so what do we do? What does everything that is gospel-oriented do? It reflects praise. It speaks of the worthiness of the one who's given the gift of salvation. Even our sanctification, the good works that we perform. This is where we can wrestle with the flesh even as believers. We want to work some credit and some self-worth, if you will, into the equation. Gospel thinking renders praise to God. Gospel thinking glories in the giver. You think of our works that are part of our sanctification. How does Christ phrase it in the Sermon on the Mount? Ponder that. He speaks of our light shining before men. That they might see our good works and do what? Glorify our Father which is in heaven. That's a spin. That's a perspective of our works that the flesh doesn't want. No, the flesh wants to turn a little of that spotlight on us. No, as Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul could even under inspiration speak of the labors that he engaged in, even surpassing the labors of the other apostles. He said, it's not me. He's thankful for the opportunity of that service. Because this last implication of thanksgiving is that it implies the glory of the giver. We render thanks to one that is outside of self. We render thanks to a gracious Heavenly Father. And you look at this section we've read in Ephesians. You remember our studies here. It seems like yesterday to me, but it was a few years ago indeed. I think at least this opening part of chapter 5, I 
handled under the title of, um, was I listening to my own sermon? Something like general preparations for particular duties. Because in the next verse where we ended our reading, he begins to speak to wives, and then husbands, and then children, and then servants. Those particular places in life that we find ourselves, and some of the particular commands and encouragements and admonitions that belong to wives and husbands and children and servants and masters. But the opening part of the chapter is this gospel heart that is foundational to all of those roles. We might have different responsibilities one to another, but all of us build on the gospel foundation of these things. And I love that last phrase of this section, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Well, in a lot of the roles that follow, we submit ourselves to someone else and we are in leadership to other people. But yet in the basic sense, we submit ourselves to one another in the fear of God. We take even those roles appropriately in the fear of God where we would be leaders instead of followers. I punched a phrase I've punched here often in the pastoral theology class. I didn't tell them exactly, but I dropped a lot of hints that you might want to remember this phrase. You know, there's a test coming. And I had a little fill-in-the-blank section. I talked about leadership, spiritual leadership, not being the selfish privilege of forcing your will on other people, but the selfless responsibility of pursuing God's will for everyone. Well, here's that gospel heart that isn't focused on self. It's focused on the glory of God. It's focused on the giver of every good and perfect gift. And I say it's not then surprising that this section of Ephesians with those foundational preparations for all of our varied roles, it's got bookends. The bookends of thanksgiving. For we read after some of that echo of the listing of vices in Romans 1, the stuff that shouldn't belong to us, but rather giving of thanks. And then we come to the close of this section. And here we find ourselves singing to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God. Just as each Sunday is a reminder of the resurrection, not just Easter, every day, and not just a late Thursday in Thanksgiving. It should be a day of Thanksgiving for the people of God. And all that in the Gospel, it implies. It implies our need 
It implies the reception of gifts to meet our need. It implies a grateful spirit in the recipients. And it implies and seeks out the glory of the giver of these gifts. I trust the Lord will help us be mindful of the place of thanksgiving in gospel thinking and not be as the ungodly who neither were thankful became vain in their imaginations to instead be a thankful people and to think rightly to rejoice in passing from darkness to light that we've been given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come tonight and have the echo of we trust familiar truth. But yet, Lord, the daily need, dare we say the daily battles with the thinking of this world seeking to gain entrance into our own hearts. Lord, put that hedge about our hearts and minds. It's a phrase we use in our prayers often. Don't let us be mindless and repeating an empty, vain repetition. But put a hedge, put a barrier around us, our children, Lord, we would be protected from the false thinking of the unthankful, ungodly that surround us every day. Instead of all the things that characterize this age, let those not once be named among us, but instead what should and must be named among us giving of thanks. Make us indeed a thankful people. We pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.